I love the story that Peter told as we were gathering a moment ago and reflecting on just the ground that we're sitting on and walking on when we're here in this auditorium. Uh, those scripture verses and those prayers that he cited written by the children of the church and so many of the volunteers of the church are everywhere through this space. There's not a person sitting in this place today that doesn't have scripture or prayer underneath their feet. And even above us, on the beams before we painted them, more of the praises and the aspirations of God's people, uh, more of the record of God's truth. And we are immersed, in a sense, uh, in the pond of God's provision and his presence. And it's a wonderful thing just to continue to worship uh, here. And even if you're joining us from home today, we are glad to have you in the water with us as we are reflecting during this Lenten season on the, on the question of why they crucified Jesus. Why someone so good, uh, so loving, so attractive in so many ways could have incited in people a desire to put him away, uh, to put him out of their misery in a sense. Well, to get a, a little bit of a handle on that, I want to read from uh, God's word today. And I'm going to bring us to the famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And just invite you to listen to one thing Jesus said that, that might account for why people found him pretty disturbing. So listen to this, if you would. Verse 27, chapter 5. Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. If I came up to you right now and I put a microphone in front of your face and I said, give me an adjective, give me just one adjective that describes Jesus, how many of you might say loving? How many of you might say wise, or good, or challenging? How many of you would say fun? <laughs> yeah, you laugh, because I'm not thinking, especially after reading that text, that that's the first word that comes to mind when you think of Jesus. And yet, that's kind of strange if you really ponder it. The scriptures make it clear that Jesus was one of those people to whom children thronged. Uh, if you've caught any of the uh, Chosen series on television that tells the, the New Testament story in a, in a fresh way, you'll have seen the interactions between Jesus and children in that context. And I think that's probably very much what it was like, actually. Ask yourself this question, however. Have you ever known someone that children really wanted to be around 
who was not a lot of fun. Or think about the kind of hard-bitten, tough people that chose to uh, travel with Jesus. Uh, think of, of Peter the fisherman and Matthew the tax collector and, and, and Judas the political activist. And, and do you know any of those kinds of guys in, in our world today who would actively leave behind their, their families and their, and their workplaces to go road tripping with somebody that was not a lot of fun? No way, right? No way. Jesus had to have been a great deal of fun. And, and, and we see this in so many other ways. It's not sort of uh, blared out at us, but it's there in the text. I mean, uh, women like Mary and Martha kept the light on in their home in Bethany, just hoping that Jesus going by might just drop in. Zacchaeus, the, the, the famous tax collector, climbed up a tree at great risk to himself, could have been mugged by the crowd who hated tax collectors because he just wanted to get close to this Jesus. People found the things that Jesus said in his teaching a lot of fun, a lot of entertainment as well. Jesus would regale people with these marvelous images. He sort of, he pictured uh, camels grunting to fight their way through the eyes of needles. He pictured uh, the kingdom of God as, as like an, an old woman down on the floor, feeling around amongst the dust bunnies under her furniture, trying to find a lost coin. Did you hear the one about the guy from Gonzaga who was going down to the NCAA tournament when he fell among thieves and got mugged? Jesus told a story once, guess who stopped to help him? It was that guy Samaritan from the Arizona team. <laughs> and people would have laughed, just like you've done. Jesus had this amazing way about him. His, his, his teaching was filled with drama and satire and irony and his vision of God and of, of God's kingdom was jammed with joy. Jesus portrayed God as like this amazing dad who even when his kids messed up really badly, unbelievably stupidly, uh, that he would welcome them. He would reach out to them. He would never stop waiting for them. He, he described God as like this amazing love that would, that would welcome into his home even a hardened criminal on a cross when at the last moment he came to his senses and turn to God for mercy. Jesus described the kingdom like this place where people have their tears dried up and replaced with singing. He described heaven as like this spot where angels are rejoicing and throwing parties over even one sinner that turns back towards God and seeks to come home. He described the future kingdom as a place of banquet tables filled to overflowing where angels were like full-time working, hauling chairs out of the closet, just setting up more spaces for anybody who would accept the invitation to come to the table of the Lamb. The very first miracle that Jesus did was to change 150 gallons of ordinary water into the finest wine so that a wedding party might keep going. 
And his last, one of his last conversations with his disciples before his crucifixion, he, he threw another party. He, he threw a Passover feast. He said, I have so eagerly desired to share this supper with you. And I just, I so much want to share this celebration with you. And then he said, everything I've taught you along the way is so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. In fact, one of the writers of the scripture says that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame and took his place at the right hand of the heavenly father. So I'm hoping you're absorbing this cascade of images and descriptions and letting it sink in and sensing something of the spirit with which Jesus lived his life and looked at life and and led us towards greater life. I think it's really important to remember that dominant spirit of Jesus for two reasons. First, because it helps us understand why Jesus so bugged the Pharisees and and the other religious leaders of his time. Uh, They looked at at this life-affirming, joy-producing, freedom-celebrating aspect of Jesus' nature, and they concluded that just couldn't possibly be God speaking. They looked at the way that Jesus embraced ordinary people, not just ordinary people, but broken people, and messed up people, and imperfect people, and they thought that just can't be God acting. They listened to Christ's critique of their way of life and the radical claims that Jesus made about himself and they decided we've got to get rid of that guy. He stands against everything that religion is supposed to be. We've got to crucify him. But there's a second reason why we also need to remember the dominant, joyful, fun, hopeful, positive spirit of Jesus. It not only helps us understand why the Pharisees killed him, it may help to balance our perspective when a few minutes from now you may think, I'd like to crucify him too. You see, there are times when Jesus does not seem like much fun. And in this particular passage from Matthew chapter 5, we meet him at one of those moments. There are moments when Jesus seems to to smash up against our sense of freedom and fulfillment and all of the ways that we're constantly being enculturated to think about what's in our best interests. There are moments when Jesus looks us right in the eye and he says, I want you to do a better job of patrolling your pleasures because I love you. Patrol your pleasures. Maybe you've heard the joke about Moses coming down from Mount Sinai and saying to the Israelites, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news for you. And the good news is I've got God pared down to not just 10 commandments. And the bad news is the one about adultery still in there. I couldn't get him to give that one up. Now, truthfully, we're actually okay with that commandment. 
Uh, most of us are, are, are okay with it, at least at the start of things. I have yet to ever go over wedding vows with a couple in all of my years of doing pastoral ministry, and, and I've, n- I've never, ever had uh, the couple say, you know, is it okay if we put in there the vow someplace a multiple partners option? Not once in over 35 years have I had anybody ask for that. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, some of us might wince because we failed badly someplace, Uh, But virtually all of us get it. Even those of us who have failed badly, we still get it that faithfulness to one person is the object, is the good thing, is what we're reaching for. It's the sentence that follows that one which is harder to take. So much harder to take. Jesus says, you know, I know the conventional wisdom is. Just don't commit adultery. But I want to stretch you further, he says. And I want to tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. I mean, does he really mean that? I mean, is he truly serious about that? Is he trying to tell me that even a little fantasizing isn't okay? I mean, what could be wrong with a little derriere stare now and then as long as I don't actually touch? I mean, what could be a problem with just looking at an explicit magazine or website so long as I'm not actually breaking my commitment to my marriage? Or carry the idea out even further. Because lusting is not just about sexual connections. Most of us get the notion that we're not meant to be owned by physical possessions, that we're meant to be wise stewards of our resources. So is there really a problem with a little lusting after the things we see in catalogs? Is there anything wrong with my just sort of being a little bit uh, obsessed with the stuff I see in the shopping malls? So long as I don't actually pull out the credit card all that often. Most of us want to take care of our bodies. We want them to be, you know, workable temples of the Holy Spirit for as long as we can. So is there any real problem if we just browse the refrigerator or the candy aisle now and then? What's wrong with this kind of innocent fun? You should talk to my wife about that because sometimes, you know, I will, I, I will just walk up. I'm not necessarily really hungry, but I'll just walk up. And we've got one of those refrigerators we picked up during the pandemic that's got the double open doors and the freezer down at the bottom and I'll just pull open the doors and I'll stand there with my hands on the sides, just sort of looking. And she'll say to me, Are you lusting after what's in there? (laughs) Do you really need that? And I'll hang my head and I'll let go of the doors and I'll close the doors and I'll walk away. What's wrong with a little innocent looking? A little innocent fun? The only way to answer that question helpfully, I think, is is to understand what the Bible has to say 
about how the battle for the human heart gets won or lost. Dallas Willard, um, who's been a great spiritual mentor to many of us, uh, former professor of philosophy at USC in Southern California, guest here at church, Christ Church on more than one occasion. Dallas points out that so far as the Bible describes it, the human heart is the executive center of our lives. That's what the Bible means when it speaks of the heart. And it's important to also know that in the Bible, the word heart, spirit, and will are interchangeable. They all mean the same thing, wherever you read those words. Heart, spirit, and will, they have to do with the mobile orientation of the human nature, of the human self. The self, or the heart, is the executive center of our lives. The writer of Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Your heart, your spirit, your will is the, is the place in yourself from which everything flows and goes. A spiritually healthy heart pumps out choices and conduct that influence for the better all of your external relationships in all of the different spheres of your life. When my heart is healthy, I am better as a husband, I'm better as a, as a dad, I'm better as a coworker, I'm better as a citizen. Uh, in all the spheres of my life, I do better and I bring, bring better things when my spiritual heart is healthy. So the Bible teaches that the health of the human heart is influenced primarily through two arteries. Now, I'm just speaking metaphorically here, okay? So, so the two arteries that influence the health of the heart are, are the blood vessels of, of reason and of emotions. Of reason and emotions. And, and it pictures the destruction of the human heart as coming from the buildup of plaque, in, in a sense, in either one of those arteries. Um, back when I was 52 years old, uh, 11 years ago now, I had a heart attack. Some of you know that story. Um, I did not see it coming. I mean, I, when it happened, I felt totally innocent. I did not see this thing coming. Uh, never mind the fact that I had just finished a double bacon cheeseburger and this really tall milkshake, right? Which had been like my pattern and lots of fast food and other kinds of, of things going into my body. I had not thought all that much, even though I could have, because there's a history of heart disease in my family. Um, I did not think all that much about what was pumping in uh, to, through my blood vessels. And, and what we're being called to think about is what actually goes in. Uh, what, what kinds of images, ideas, and impulses are invading our heart, are clogging our reason or corrupting our emotions to the point where our health is compromised a little bit at a time. You following me? This, this idea matters so much that it's, it's one of the very first insights into life God gives us at the start of the Bible. 
One of the very first stories that gets told, Genesis chapter three, is about the heart attack that compromised human life and that continues to work its way out through human history. In Genesis chapter three, we read about these two individuals who get attacked by a serpent, it's the devil figure in the story, uh, first down the artery of reason. His first attack is to challenge their minds and disfigure and corrupt the mind. And, And the devil says in this story to Eve, you cannot really trust God. And he actually says it, he says, did God really say that you can't eat of any of the trees in this garden? Which is a corruption already, because God said just the opposite. He said you can eat of all of the trees in the garden, except this one. But he's just painting God as unreasonable. He, he's distorting her thinking in this initial story. You can't really trust him. He's setting unreasonable limits. He just wants to keep you from pleasures and privileges he has for himself. He knows you'll be like him if you take this. He's corrupting her reason. And then he comes at uh, human beings through the artery of emotion. And we're told in the scriptures that Eve was led to feel that the fruit of the tree was good for food Yeah, but she had like a billion other options. And it was pleasing to the eye. I mean, he's basically saying, focus on it, focus on it. Ignore the billions of options. Focus on that one thing you don't have. And it was also desirable for gaining wisdom. So the reason gets compromised. You can't trust God. Then the emotions get breached. Oh, that forbidden fruit would really be desirable. It will really taste good. You want that. You should obsess on that. And then the heart fails. And the will falls. Why we call it the fall. And Genesis says, so Eve took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Sometimes uh, there's a bad rap pinned on Eve as being like the sole failure in this instance. But guess what? She was there with the refrigerator doors wide open, staring at the fruit, lusting after that fruit. Did her husband say, hey, honey, back off. That's not going to help you. We don't, we don't want to go there. God's created such a world for us. We don't need that. So he drops the ball there too. And so we're told they ate it. They both ate it. Another poet put it this way. I love this little poem. Who's there? I cried. A little lonely sin. Enter, I said. And all hell came in. I've tasted a certain amount of hell myself in places through the years. I'm not going to tell stories here. This is a G-rated audience. But I've tasted some of that over my life. I count as good friends several people who've spent a lot of time in hell, at least in the euphemistic sense of that. Uh, One of my friends gave me permission to share something of his experience with you. And and his experience was one of struggling for many, many years against the pull of pornography and the habit of lusting and fantasizing and finally the full-blown heart attack uh, 
of, of adultery and then serial uh, acts in that direction. And this is what he said. And this is what he's learned as he's found his way redemptively back into a healthier place of life, a healthy place of life. He says, the battle for the human heart and all the health or horror that flows from it must be waged at the perimeter of our lives. Let me say that again slowly because that's really important. The battle for the health of the human heart and all of the uh, hope or horror that flows from it has to be waged at the perimeter of our lives. You cannot, he says, retreat into the sanctuary of comparative righteousness. You cannot tell yourself, oh, at least I'm not like so-and-so, or at least I haven't gone and done that yet. You've got to post guards at the perimeter, he said. I use the, the metaphor that's popular today in our geopolitics and say you've got to be there at the border with the anti-tank weaponry. You've got to get there early. You've got to be really assertive at the boundary of temptation long before the full-scale invasion has begun. That's where you need to get involved. And this, I think, is what Jesus is really saying to us in Matthew chapter 5, 27 and following. At first glance, I will admit his words seem absolutely draconian, which means really bad really harsh, really over the top. But remember, Jesus always uses hyperbole to get our attention. He, he, he uses hyperbole, extreme language, to shake us by the lapels so we won't regret the life choices we've ultimately made. And this is what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Well, in the early days of the Christian church, um, there was a guy named Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, one of the most brilliant scholars of the Christian church. He, he actually translated the Bible into five languages and wrote the first parallel Bible, you know, long before word processors. He did all this by hand. He was a genius in the Christian life. He missed just one thing. And that is what Jesus was really meaning here. He took it literally. He castrated himself. He then realized to his horror, I still have lustful feelings. Oh no, oh no. He found out that his deepest problem wasn't with his part, but with his heart. It was his heart, it was his orientation. That was his great challenge. So let me be really clear. Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation here. Please don't go home and do anything dramatic here. What he's trying to say is that, so, that few things so affect our, our reason and our emotions as what our eyes are fixed upon and what our hands are touching. Your eyes and your hands are, are the sentries to be posted at the perimeter of life. They are, your, they are your help. They, 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 are, they are the guards that are, that are meant to work in such a way that they keep 
powerful and harmful ideas and images from crawling your way, their way so deep into your camp that you're conquered by them. That you're conquered by them. Who's there? A little lonely sin. Enter, I said. And all hell came in. Your eyes and your hand are meant to stop that from happening. If your eyes are, and hands are failing in that function, says Jesus, if they're actually bringing the enemy in, then what measures are you going to take to redeploy them? That's what he, when he talks about cutting and gouging, he says, do something radical to redeploy your resources for the good. I know it sounds a, 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 a little medieval, but Doug Weiss, one of the nation's leading experts on handling obsessions, compulsions, and addictions, suggests that people struggling in this area uh, get themselves a rubber band. Get yourself a rubber band, put it around your wrist, and when you're, when you're struggling with this draw, grab the band, pull it back, give it a good snap. A friend of mine that has used this particular text, technique says, you know, it's amazing, actually, how, how when I do that, um, the, the pain completely redirects me from the pleasure that I was contemplating. And I find that really helpful. And it sort of restores my clarity again. So when you find your eye or your hand straying in the direction of trouble, you know, maybe you need to Find something that gives you a good snap to your senses. Um, the desert fathers of ancient Christianity had a, had a phrase for this. They called it mortification of the flesh. Mortification of the flesh. You can definitely carry that too far. I think Dan Brown wrote novels about this weird guy that did that. Uh, Origen carried it too far. But the critical question is, what measures will we use to guard our hearts? What measures will we use to guard our reason and emotions? I, I know a person who, who, who's adopted the technique of uh, bringing in the mail, walking immediately to the recycling bin and throwing every single catalog into it. Just like, do not pass, do not uh, Pass go. Uh, you know, do, do, not, do not collect anything that might be in that, in my, in my mind. Um, I know people that mute the advertisements on TV for the same reason, because every time these images just invade their heart and mind and, and create this lust for more. I got to have more. I got to have that. I know a guy who's taught himself not to even turn on the TV when he's on a business trip because he knows what's, what channels are available there and he knows where that's going to go. So he just doesn't turn on the TV. I've learned I need to turn off the morning radio programs and some of the evening news programs because I find that the incredibly crass and cruel way that the people there are talking about other people affects my heart for other people. You know, just it, it begins to clog my ability for compassion or even thinking clearly. My reason and emotions get compromised by these voices I, I let in. How does it work for you? What, what's, what's your strategy? 
What are the measures that you take to patrol the pleasures, the ostensible pleasures that get offered at the perimeter of your life? Maybe even more helpfully, let me ask, what are the ideas and images that you are replacing the destructive ones with? Nature abhors a vacuum. If it's just an empty space, those things will tend to find a way in unless you put something else there that that creates a positive pressure outwards. Well, that's the function of the spiritual disciplines in Christian tradition. Spiritual disciplines not only connect us to the vine or root ourselves in Christ, they focus our mind and our our reason and our emotions on things constructive in a way that creates a positive pressure against the things that would invade us negatively. Uh, So if you go to the um, Lenten devotional section of our website, you'll find some resources that you might try, some disciplines that you might try as a way of, of... establishing a better perimeter and a a greater content in your life. In his letter to the Christians at Philippi, the Apostle Paul was getting at this when he writes these words. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Make that your fascination, your focus. Uh, replace the negative with that. Somebody goes by, by you, you know, and you, the, lust, the feelings run a certain direction. You know, immediately replace whatever thoughts might come next by the, by the statement, praise God for a child of God. There goes one of your sons and daughters, Lord. You do beautiful work. I pray for your good in that person's life. Martin Luther used to say that that these negative thoughts are like birds flying overhead. And they'll just keep going as long as we don't make a nest for them. As long as we don't start to coddle them. And even better, if, if we change our way of even viewing them. Whatever is noble and praiseworthy and excellent, think on these things. And he goes on and says, and the God of peace will be with you. Would you like peace, a greater measure of peace in your life? A lot of us would. But I also want to recognize that for some of us, maybe we just haven't gotten to the point yet where we realize our need for peace. Maybe we think that, that, that really the titillated, adrenaline rush life that's always being pumped our direction by the world around us, maybe that is really living. Perhaps we're not all that motivated to pursue a life that is noble, pure, lovely, admirable, and a life like everybody else is just fine with us. The apostle James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed Pursue health together is what he's saying. But frankly, maybe some of us would just like forgiveness for our obsessions so we can go on pursuing those things. We want grace, not healing. Maybe that's you. Well, if it is, then let's just keep doing what we have been doing with our eyes 
and with our hands. And while we're at it, just look at that guy, Jesus over there. Can you believe his nerve in telling me to patrol my pleasures? Why shouldn't I have all the fun in the world I want? Maybe we should just crucify him. <laughs> 